0: Hey everyone! My name is Molly Burdick, and I am the co host of Pod and Prejudice, a Jane Austen deep dive podcast. Before starting this podcast, I had never read any Jane Austen, and my co host Becca is a Jane Austen superfan. Together, we're going through the Austen canon, chapter by chapter, examining these stories through a modern feminist lens. Season one covered Pride and Prejudice and its most famous filmed adaptations. Currently, we're in our second season, Reading Sense and Sensibility. You can listen to our show at podandprejudice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I am so thrilled to be reading chapters 3 and 4 of A Phantom Lover by Vernon Lee for you today. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 3 I feel that I cannot possibly reconstruct my earliest impressions of Mrs. Oak. My recollection of them would be entirely colored by my subsequent knowledge of her once I conclude that I could not at first have experienced the strange interest and admiration which that extraordinary woman very soon excited in me. Interest and admiration, be it well understood, of a very unusual kind, as she was herself a very unusual kind of woman. And I, if you choose, am a rather unusual kind of man. But I can explain that better anon. This much is certain that I must have been immeasurably surprised at finding my hostess and future sitters so completely unlike everything I had anticipated. Or, no. Now I come to think of it, I scarcely felt surprised at all. Or if I did, that shock of surprise could have lasted but an infinitesimal part of a minute. The fact is that, having once seen Alice Oak in the reality, it was quite impossible to remember that one could have fancied her at all different. There was something so complete, so completely unlike everyone else in her personality that she seemed always to have been present in one's consciousness, although present, perhaps, as an enigma. Let me try to give you some notion of her. Not that first impression, whatever it may have been, but the absolute reality of her as I gradually learned to see it. To begin with, I must repeat and reiterate over and over again that she was, beyond all comparison, the most graceful and exquisite woman I have ever seen, but with a grace and an exquisiteness that had nothing to do with any preconceived notion or previous experience of what goes by these names. Grace and exquisiteness recognized at once as perfect, but which were seen in her for the first, and probably I do believe for the last time. It is conceivable, is it not, that once in a thousand years there may arise a combination of lines, a system of movements, an outline, a gesture which is new, unprecedented, and yet hits off exactly our desires for beauty and rareness? She was very tall, and I suppose people would have called her thin. I don't know, for I never thought about her as a body bones, flesh, that sort of thing, but merely as a wonderful series of lines and a a wonderful strangeness of personality. Tall and slender, certainly, and with not one item of what makes up our notion of a well-built woman. She was as straight, I mean she had as little of what people call figure, as a bamboo. Her shoulders were a trifle high, and she had a decided stoop. Her arms and her shoulders she never once wore uncovered. But this bamboo figure of hers had a suppleness and a stateliness, a play of outline with every step she took that I can't compare to anything else. There was in it something of the peacock, and something also of the stag. But, above all, it was her own. I wish I could describe her. I wish—alas— I wish, I wish, I have wished a hundred thousand times I could paint her, as I see her now if I shut my eyes, even if it were only a silhouette. There. I see her so plainly, walking slowly up and down a room, the slight highness of her shoulders, just completing the exquisite arrangement of lines made by the straight, supple back, the long, exquisite neck, the head with the hair cropped in short, pale curls, always drooping a little, except when she would suddenly throw it back and smile, not at me, nor at anyone, nor at anything that had been said, but as if she alone had suddenly seen or heard something, with the strange dimple in her thin, pale cheeks, and the strange whiteness in her full, wide-opened eyes, the moment when she had something of the stag in her movement. But where is the use of talking about her? I don't believe you know that even the greatest painter can show what is the real beauty of a very beautiful woman in the ordinary sense. Titian's and Tintoretto's women must have been miles handsomer than they have made them. Something, and that, the very essence, always escapes, perhaps because real beauty is as much a thing in time—a thing like music, a succession, a series—as in space. Mind you, I am speaking of a woman beautiful in the conventional sense. Imagine, then, how much more so in the case of a woman like Alice Oak? And if the pencil and brush imitating each line and tint can't succeed, how is it possible to give even the vaguest notion with mere wretched words? Words possessing only a wretched abstract meaning, an impotent conventional association. To make a long story short, Mrs. Oak of Oakhurst was, in my opinion, to the highest degree exquisite and strange— An exotic creature, whose charm you can no more describe than you could bring home the perfume of some newly discovered tropical flower by comparing it with the scent of a cabbage rose or a lily. That first dinner was gloomy enough. Mr. Oak, Oak of Oakhurst, as the people down there called him, was horribly shy, consumed with a fear of making a fool of himself before me and his wife, I then thought. But that sort of shyness did not wear off, and I soon discovered that, although it was doubtless increased by the presence of a total stranger, it was inspired in Oak not by me, but by his wife. He would look every now and then as if he were going to make a remark, and then evidently restrain himself and remain silent. It was very curious to see this big, handsome, manly young fellow, who ought to have had any amount of success with women, suddenly stammer and grow crimson in the presence of his own wife nor was it the consciousness of stupidity. For when you got him alone, Oak, although always slow and timid, had a certain amount of ideas, and very defined political and social views, and a certain childlike earnestness and desire to attain certainty and truth which was rather touching. On the other hand, Oak's singular shyness was not, so far as I could see, the result of any kind of bullying on his wife's part. You can always detect, if you have any observation the husband or the wife who is accustomed to be snubbed, to be corrected by his or her better half. There is a self-consciousness in both parties, a habit of watching and fault-finding, of being watched and found fault with. This was clearly not the case at Oakhurst. Mrs. Oak evidently did not trouble herself about her husband in the very least. He might say or do any amount of silly things without rebuke or even notice and he might have done so, had he chosen, ever since his wedding day. You felt that at once. Mrs. Oak simply passed over his existence. I cannot say she paid much attention to anyone's, even to mine. At first I thought it an affectation on her part, for there was something far-fetched in her whole appearance, something suggesting study, which might lead one to tax her with affectation at first. She was dressed in a strange way, not according to any established aesthetic eccentricity, but individually strangely, as if in the clothes of an ancestress of the seventeenth century. Well, at first I thought it a kind of pose on her part, this mixture of extreme graciousness and utter indifference which she manifested towards me. She always seemed to be thinking of something else and although she talked quite sufficiently, and with every sign of superior intelligence, she left the impression of having been as taciturn as her husband. In the beginning, in the first few days of my stay at Oakhurst, I imagined that Mrs. Oak was a highly superior sort of flirt, and that her absent manner, her look while speaking to you into an invisible distance, her curious, irrelevant smile, were so many means of attracting and baffling adoration. I mistook it for the somewhat similar manners of certain foreign women—it is beyond English ones—which mean, to those who can understand, pay court to me. But I soon found I was mistaken. Mrs. Oak had not the faintest desire that I should pay court to her. Indeed she did not honour me with sufficient thought for that, and I, on my part, began to be too much interested in her from another point of view to dream of such a thing. I became aware not merely that I had before me the most marvelously rare and exquisite and baffling subject for a portrait, but also one of the most peculiar and enigmatic of characters. Now that I look back upon it, I am tempted to think that the psychological peculiarity of that woman might be summed up in an exorbitant and absorbing interest in herself, a narcissus attitude, curiously complicated with a fantastic imagination, a sort of morbid daydreaming, all turned inwards and with no outer characteristics save a certain restlessness, a perverse desire to surprise and shock, to surprise and shock more particularly her husband, and thus be revenged for the intense boredom which his want of appreciation inflicted upon her. I got to understand this much little by little, yet I did not seem to have really penetrated the something mysterious about Mrs. Oak. There was a waywardness, a strangeness, which I felt but could not explain, a something as difficult to define as the peculiarity of her outward appearance, and perhaps very closely connected therewith. I became interested in Mrs. Oak, as if I had been in love with her, and I was not in the least in love. I neither dreaded parting from her nor felt any pleasure in her presence. I had not the smallest wish to please or to gain her notice, but I had her on the brain, I pursued her, her physical image, her psychological explanation, with a kind of passion which filled my days and prevented my ever feeling dull. The Oaks lived a remarkably solitary life. There were but few neighbors of whom they saw but little, and they rarely had a guest in the house. Oak himself seemed every now and then seized with a sense of responsibility towards me. He would remark vaguely during our walks and after-dinner chats that I must find life at Oakhurst horribly dull. His wife's health had accustomed him to solitude, and then also his wife thought the neighbors a bore. He never questioned his wife's judgment in these matters. He merely stated the case as if resignation were quite simple and inevitable. Yet it seemed to me sometimes that this monotonous life of solitude, by the side of a woman who took no more heed of him than of a table or chair, was producing a vague depression and irritation in this young man, so evidently cut out for a cheerful, commonplace life. I often wondered how he could endure it at all, not having, as I had, the interest of a strange psychological riddle to solve, and of a great portrait to paint. He was, I found, extremely good. The type of the perfectly conscientious young Englishman, the sort of man who ought to have been the Christian soldier kind of thing, devout, pure-minded, brave, incapable of any baseness, a little intellectually dense, and puzzled by all manner of moral scruples. The condition of his tenants and of his political party, he was a regular Kentish Tory, lay heavy on his mind. He spent hours every day in his study, doing the work of a land agent and a political whip, reading piles of reports and newspapers and agricultural treatises, and emerging for lunch with piles of letters in his hand and that odd puzzled look in his good healthy face, that deep gash between his eyebrows, which my friend the mad doctor calls the maniac frown. It was with this expression of face that I should have liked to paint him, but I felt that he would not have liked it, that it was more fair to represent him in his mere wholesome pink-and-white-and-blonde conventionality. I was, perhaps, rather unconscientious about the likeness of Mr. Oak. I felt satisfied to paint it no matter how. I mean, as regards character, for my whole mind was swallowed up in thinking how I should paint Mrs. Oak, how I could best transport onto canvas that singular and enigmatic personality. I began with her husband and told her frankly that I must have much longer to study her. Mr. Oak couldn't understand why it should be necessary to make 101 pencil sketches of his wife before even determining in what attitude to paint her, but I think he was rather pleased to have an opportunity of keeping me at Oakhurst. My presence evidently broke the monotony of his life. Mrs. Oak seemed perfectly indifferent to my staying, as she was perfectly indifferent to my presence." Without being rude, I never saw a woman pay so little attention to a guest. She would talk with me sometimes by the hour, or rather let me talk to her, but she never seemed to be listening. She would lie back in a big 17th century armchair while I played the piano, with that strange smile every now and then in her thin cheeks, that strange whiteness in her eyes, but it seemed a matter of indifference whether my music stopped or went on. In my portrait of her husband she did not take, or pretend to take, the very faintest interest. But that was nothing to me. I did not want Mrs. Oak to think me interesting. I merely wished to go on studying her. The first time that Mrs. Oak seemed to become at all aware of my presence as distinguished from that of the chairs and tables, the dogs that lay in the porch, or the clergyman or lawyer or stray neighbor who was occasionally asked to dinner, was one day. I might have been there a week when I chanced to remark to her upon the very singular resemblance that existed between herself and the portrait of a lady that hung in the hall with the ceiling like a ship's hull. The picture in question was a full-length, neither very good nor very bad, probably done by some stray Italian of the early 17th century. It hung in a rather dark corner, facing the portrait evidently painted to be its companion of a dark man, with a somewhat unpleasant expression of resolution and efficiency in a black Van Dyke dress, the two were evidently man and wife, and in the corner of the woman's portrait were the words Alice Oak, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, Esquire, and wife to Nicholas Oak of Oakhurst, and the date, 1626, Nicholas Oak being the name painted in the corner of the small portrait. The lady was really wonderfully like the present Mrs. Oak, at least so far as an indifferently painted portrait of the early days of Charles I can be like a living woman of the 19th century. There were the same strange lines of figure and face, the same dimples in the thin cheeks, the same wide-opened eyes, the same vague eccentricity of expression, not destroyed even by the feeble painting in conventional manner of the time. One could fancy that this woman had the same walk, the same beautiful line of nape of the neck and stooping head as her descendant. For I found that Mr. and Mrs. Oak, who were first cousins, were both descended from that Nicholas Oak and that Alice, daughter of Virgil Pomfret. But the resemblance was heightened by the fact that, as I soon saw, the present Mrs. Oak distinctly made herself up to look like her ancestress, dressing in garments that had a seventeenth-century look, nay, that were sometimes absolutely copied from this portrait. You think I am like her? Answered Mrs. Oak dreamily to my remark, and her eyes wandered off to that unseen something, and the faint smile dimpled her thin cheeks. You are like her, and you know it. "'I may even say you wish to be like her, Mrs. Oak,' I answered, laughing. "'Perhaps I do.' And she looked in the direction of her husband. I noticed that he had an expression of distinct annoyance besides that frown of his. "'Isn't it true that Mrs. Oak tries to look like that portrait?' I asked, with a perverse curiosity. "'Oh, fudge!' he exclaimed, rising from his chair and walking nervously to the window. "'It's all nonsense, mere nonsense. I wish you wouldn't, Alice.' "'Wouldn't what?' asked Mrs. Oak, with a sort of contemptuous indifference. "'If I am like that Alice Oak, why, I am, and I am very pleased anyone should think so. "'She and her husband are just about the only two members of our family, "'our most flat, stale, unprofitable family, that ever were in the least degree interesting.' "'Oak grew crimson and frowned as if in pain. "'I don't see why you should abuse our family, Alice,' he said. Thank God our people have always been honorable and upright men and women. "'Excepting always Nicholas Oak and Alice his wife, daughter of Virgil Promfrit, Esquire,' she answered, laughing, as he strode out into the park. "'How childish he is!' she exclaimed when we were alone. "'He really minds, really feels disgraced by what our ancestors did two centuries and a half ago.' I do believe William would have those two portraits taken down and burned if he weren't afraid of me and ashamed of the neighbours. And as it is, these two people really are the only two members of our family that ever were in the least interesting. I will tell you the story some day. As it was, the story was told to me by Oak himself. The next day, as we were taking our morning walk, he suddenly broke a long silence laying about him all the time at the sere grasses with the hooked stick that he carried, like the conscientious Kentish man he was, for the purpose of cutting down his and other folks' thistles. "'I fear you must have thought me very ill-mannered towards my wife yesterday,' he said shyly. And indeed, I know I was. Oak was one of those chivalrous beings to whom every woman, every wife, and his own, most of all, appeared in the light of something holy. But—but— but, I have a prejudice which my wife does not enter into, about raking up ugly things in one's own family. I suppose Alice thinks that it is so long ago that it has really got no connection with us, and she thinks of it merely as a picturesque story. I dare say many people feel like that. In short, I am sure they do, otherwise there wouldn't be such lots of discreditable family traditions afloat. But I feel as if it were all one, whether it was long ago or not when it's a question of one's own people, I would rather have it forgotten. I can't understand how people can talk about murders in their families and ghosts and so forth. "'Have you got any ghosts at Oakhurst, by the way?' I asked. The place seemed as if it required some to complete it. "'I hope not,' answered Oak gravely. His gravity made me smile. "'Why, would you dislike it if there were?' I asked. "'If there are such things as ghosts,' he replied, "'I don't think they should be taken lightly.' God would not permit them to be, except as a warning or a punishment. We walked on, some time in silence, I wondering at the strange type of this commonplace young man, and half wishing I could put something into my portrait that should be the equivalent of this curious, unimaginative earnestness. Then Oak told me the story of those two pictures, told it me about as badly and hesitatingly as was possible for mortal man. He and his wife were, as I have said, cousins, and therefore descended from the same old Kentish stock. The Oaks of Oakhurst could trace back to Norman almost to Saxon times, far longer than any of the titled or better-known families of the neighborhood. I saw that William Oak, in his heart, thoroughly looked down upon all his neighbors. "'We have never done anything particular, or been anything particular, never held any office,' he said." But we have always been here, and apparently always done our duty. An ancestor of ours was killed in the Scotch Wars, another at Agincourt. Mere honest captains. Well, early in the 17th century, the family had dwindled to a single member, Nicholas Oak, the same who had rebuilt Oakhurst in its present shape. This Nicholas appears to have been somewhat different from the usual run of the family. He had, in his youth, sought adventures in America— and seems, generally speaking, to have been less of a nonentity entity than his ancestors. He married, when no longer very young, Alice, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, a beautiful young heiress from a neighboring county. It was the first time an oak married a pomfret, my host informed me, and the last time. The Pomfrets were quite different sort of people, restless, self-seeking. One of them had been a favorite of Henry VIII., It was clear that William Oak had no feeling of having any pomfret blood in his veins. He spoke of these people with an evident family dislike—the dislike of an oak, one of the old, honorable, modest stock, which had quietly done its duty for a family of fortune-seekers and court minions. Well, there had come to live near Oakhurst, in a little house recently inherited from an uncle, a certain Christopher Lovelock, a young gallant and poet, who was in momentary disgrace at court for some love affair. This Lovelock had struck up a great friendship with his neighbors at Oakhurst. Too great a friendship, apparently, with the wife, either for her husband's taste or her own. Anyhow, one evening as he was riding home alone, Lovelock had been attacked and murdered, ostensibly by highwaymen, but as was afterwards rumored, by Nicholas Oak, accompanied by his wife, dressed as a groom. No legal evidence had been got, but the tradition had remained— They used to tell it us when we were children, said my host in a hoarse voice, and to frighten my cousin, I mean my wife, and me with stories about Lovelock. It is merely a tradition which I hope may die out, and I sincerely pray to heaven that it may be false. Alice, Mrs. Oak, you see, he went on after some time, doesn't feel about it as I do. Perhaps I am morbid, but I do dislike having the old story raked up. And we said no more on the subject. Chapter 4. From that moment I began to assume a certain interest in the eyes of Mrs. Oak, or rather, I began to perceive that I had a means of securing her attention. Perhaps it was wrong of me to do so, and I have often reproached myself very seriously later on, but after all, how was I to guess that I was making mischief merely by chiming in for the sake of the portrait I had undertaken, and of a very harmless psychological mania, with what was merely the fad, the little romantic affectation or eccentricity of a scatterbrained and eccentric young woman. How in the world should I have dreamed that I was handling explosive substances? A man is surely not responsible if the people with whom he is forced to deal and whom he deals with, as with all the rest of the world, are quite different from all other human creatures. So, if indeed I did at all conduce to mischief, I really cannot blame myself. I had met in Mrs. Oak an almost unique subject for a portrait painter of my particular sort and a most singular, bizarre personality. I could not possibly do my subject justice so long as I was kept at a distance, prevented from studying the real character of the woman. I required to put her into play. "'and I ask you whether any more innocent way of doing so could be found "'than talking to a woman and letting her talk "'about an absurd fancy she had for a couple of ancestors of hers "'of the time of Charles I and a poet whom they had murdered. "'Particularly as I studiously respected the prejudices of my host "'and refrained from mentioning the matter "'and tried to restrain Mrs. Oak from doing so "'in the presence of William Oak himself. "'I had certainly guessed correctly.' To resemble the Alice Oak of the year 1626 was the caprice, the mania, the pose, the whatever you may call it, of the Alice Oak of 1880, and to perceive this resemblance was the sure way of gaining her good graces. It was the most extraordinary craze of all the extraordinary crazes of childless and idle women that I had ever met, but it was more than that. It was admirably characteristic. It finished off the strange figure of Mrs. Oak as I saw it in my imagination, "'this bizarre creature of enigmatic, far-fetched exquisiteness, "'that she should have no interest in the present "'but only an eccentric passion in the past. "'It seemed to give the meaning to the absent look in her eyes, "'to her relevant and far-off smile. "'It was like the words to a weird piece of gypsy music, "'this, that she, who was so different, so distant, "'from all women of her own time, "'should try and identify herself with a woman of the past, "'that she should have a kind of flirtation, "'but of this anon.' I told Mrs. Oak that I had learned from her husband the outline of the tragedy or mystery, whichever it was, of Alice Oak, daughter of Virgil Pomfret, and the poet Christopher Lovelock. That look of vague contempt, of a desire to shock which I had noticed before, came into her beautiful, pale, diaphanous face. "'I suppose my husband was very shocked at the whole matter,' she said told it you with as little detail as possible, and assured you very solemnly that he hoped the whole story might be a mere dreadful calumny. Poor Willie! I remember already when we were children, and I used to come with my mother to spend Christmas at Oakhurst, and my cousin was down here for the holidays, how I used to horrify him by insisting upon dressing up in shawls and waterproofs and playing the story of the Wicked Mrs. Oak and he always piously refused to do the part of Nicholas when I wanted to have the scene on Coates Common. I didn't know then that I was like the original Alice Oak. I found it out only after our marriage. You really think that I am?" She certainly was, particularly at that moment, as she stood in a white Van Dyke dress, with the green of the parkland rising up behind her and the low sun catching her short locks and surrounding her head, her exquisitely bowed head, with a pale yellow halo. But I confess I thought the original Alice Oak, siren and murderous though she might be, very uninteresting compared with this wayward and exquisite creature whom I had rashly promised myself to send down to posterity in all her unlikely wayward exquisiteness. One morning, while Mr. Oak was dispatching his Saturday heap of conservative manifestos and rural decisions he was a justice of the peace in a most literal sense, penetrating into cottages and huts, defending the weak and admonishing the ill-conducted. One morning, while I was making one of my many pencil sketches—alas, they are all that remain to me now—of my future sitter, Mrs. Oak gave me her version of the story of Alice Oak and Christopher Lovelock. "'Do you suppose there was anything between them?' I asked. "'That she was ever in love with him? How do you explain the part which tradition ascribes to her in the supposed murder? One has heard of women and their lovers who have killed the husband, but a woman who combines with her husband to kill her lover?' or at least the man who is in love with her, that is surely very singular. I was absorbed in my drawing and really thinking very little of what I was saying. I don't know, she answered pensively with that distant look in her eyes. Alice Oak was very proud, I am sure. She may have loved the poet very much and yet been indignant with him, hating having to love him. She may have felt that she had a right to rid herself of him and to call upon her husband to help her to do so. "'Good heavens! What a fearful idea!' I exclaimed, half-laughing. "'Don't you think, after all, that Mr. Oak might be right in saying that it is easier and more comfortable to take the whole story as a pure invention?' "'I cannot take it as an invention,' answered Mrs. Oak contemptuously, "'because I happen to know that it is true.' "'Indeed?' I answered, working away at my sketch and enjoying putting this strange creature, as I said to myself, through her paces. "'How is that?' "'How does one know that anything is true in this world?' she replied evasively. Because one does. Because one feels it to be true, I suppose. And with that far-off look in her light eyes, she relapsed into silence. "'Have you ever read any of Lovelock's poetry?' she asked me suddenly the next day. "'Lovelock?' I answered, for I had forgotten the name. "'Lovelock, who—' But I stopped, remembering the prejudices of my host, who was seated next to me at the table.' "'Lovelock, who was killed by Mr. Oakes and my ancestors?' "'And she looked full at her husband, "'as if in perverse enjoyment of the evident annoyance which it caused him. "'Alice,' he entreated in a low voice, his whole face crimson, "'for mercy's sake, don't talk about such things before the servants.' "'Mrs. Oak burst into a high, light, rather hysterical laugh, "'the laugh of a naughty child. "'The servants! Gracious heavens! "'Do you suppose they haven't heard the story?' Why, it's as well known as Oakhurst itself in the neighborhood. Don't they believe that Lovelock has been seen about the house? Haven't they all heard his footsteps in the big corridor? Haven't they, my dear Willie, noticed a thousand times that you never will stay a minute alone in the yellow drawing-room, that you run out of it like a child if I happen to leave you there for a minute? True. How was it I had not noticed that? Or rather, that I only now remembered having noticed it. The Yellow Drawing Room was one of the most charming rooms in the house, a large, bright room hung with yellow damask and paneled with carvings that opened straight out onto the lawn, far superior to the room in which we habitually sit, which was comparatively gloomy. This time Mr. Oak struck me as really too childish. I felt an intense desire to badger him. The Yellow Drawing Room, I exclaimed. Does this interesting literary character haunt the Yellow Drawing Room? "'Do tell me about it. What happened there?' Mr. Oak made a painful effort to laugh. "'Nothing ever happened there, so far as I know,' he said, and rose from the table. "'Really?' I asked incredulously. "'Nothing did happen there,' answered Mrs. Oak slowly, playing mechanically with a fork and picking out the pattern of the tablecloth. "'That is just the extraordinary circumstance that, so far as anyone knows, nothing ever did happen there, and yet that room has an evil reputation.' "'No member of our family, they say, can bear to sit there alone for more than a minute. "'You see, William evidently cannot. "'Have you ever seen or heard anything strange there?' I asked of my host. "'He shook his head. "'Nothing,' he answered curtly and lit his cigar. "'I presume you have not,' I asked, half-laughing of Mrs. Oak, "'since you don't mind sitting in that room for hours alone. "'How do you explain this uncanny reputation since nothing ever happened there?' "'Perhaps something is destined to happen there in the future,' she answered in her absent voice, and then she suddenly added, "'Suppose you paint my portrait in that room?' Mr. Oak suddenly turned round. He was very white and looked as if he were going to say something, but desisted. "'Why do you worry Mr. Oak like that?' I asked when he had gone into his smoking room with his usual bundle of papers. "'It is very cruel of you, Mrs. Oak.' You ought to have more consideration for people who believe in such things, although you may not be able to put yourself in their frame of mind. Who tells you that I don't believe in such things, as you call them? She answered abruptly. Come, she said after a minute. I want to show you why I believe in Christopher Lovelock. Come with me into the yellow room.